Blog Talk Radio. Friday, February 5th, 2021. It is our Super Bowl edition of the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk Radio program. We are delighted to have you here tonight live. Uh, if you're listening to us through Facebook or through iHeartRadio or any of the other platforms out there, certainly delighted to have you here on the program tonight. We've got a lot of stuff to get to here. Of course, the Super Bowl is just two days away. Uh, basically, this time, 48 hours from now, we'll have a new Super Bowl champion between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, of course, playing at home at Raymond James Stadium, and the defending Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. I know it's going to be a very exciting game between the greatest of all time and the up-and-coming uh, greatest there in uh, in the two quarterbacks between Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. Alan is with us here tonight. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much uh, for uh, for being here. Um, good evening to you, partner. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me, and thank you so much for definitely being a part of the Allen and Aaron show. It's it's it, you said it just perfectly. It should be a great weekend here in the Tampa Bay area. I'm doing great. Uh, the city's pumped up, and it definitely should be exciting for anybody who's watching this game to have the Bucks playing a home game in the Super Bowl. Never happened before. I'm really excited. Yeah, this is going to be an exciting time. Uh, I think that the, you know, the fact that uh, Tampa has what were they a fifth or sixth seed making it into the Super Bowl, um, you know, in Tom Brady's first year with the, you know, with the team is certainly um, something to be excited about. And obviously, in Tampa, you've had a lot of things to be excited about the last several years. You have the Rays, who've been uh, certainly um, very competitive. Uh, the Lightning, of course, won the Stanley Cup this past season. Um, and now you know, the Buccaneers are trying to follow suit and uh, give their uh, version of a championship as well. So um, I know we're going to talk a lot about this game. We also have a, a very exciting guest coming on the program here tonight before too long. Uh, joining us here any moment will be uh, Trey Ashby. He is from Paper Stadiums. Uh, we posted some uh, videos on our uh, Facebook page, the Allen and Aaron Facebook page uh, during the week. Uh, Trey is uh, very talented, uh, builds these stadiums out of paper. They are meticulous in every detail. Um, I've seen uh, Wrigley Field and uh, old Yankee Stadium and the Astrodome and uh, some just very neat things. So he'll be joining us here before too long. Uh, while we're waiting for him to join us, though, Alan, let's get into a little bit about um, some breaking news that actually happened here earlier uh, this evening, and I'm not even sure that you're aware of this or not, but we've had some big signings in Major League Baseball. We're finally done waiting for these things to happen as spring training is just around the corner. Uh, Earlier today, he spurned the Mets to go to the Dodgers. Uh, Trevor Bauer, I believe it's a three-year, $105 million contract. Tell you what, I wouldn't mind having about a third of that um, for, uh, for my next contract, so to speak. So, Alan, what do you think of the Dodgers, who just won the World Series? What do you think of them adding probably the biggest free agent pitcher in the uh, in the market? 
Yeah, definitely. I did. I did see that right before we got went live, and wow, the Dodgers are just making a statement that they're really going after it to to repeat and go back to back. They want to come back a year and win it again. So they're making a statement that they're hungry. If other teams don't step up and add a few pieces to their roster, they can go ahead and do this thing again and run it back. So that's showing that they're hungry, they're they're going, they're motivated, and that's that's a big, big move for them to go ahead and pull Bauer and, and get him for that type of contract. That's amazing. I'm really impressed that they was able to go ahead and make such a aggressive move before spring training to get somebody in there to help them get another ring. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on it? Well, I mean, if they weren't a good enough team before, I mean, coming off winning a World Series and they've, you know, spent – they're the Yankees of the West at this point with the money they have to throw around. And, you know, Magic Johnson does such a great job um, as the managing general partner, I guess, uh, for uh, for the Dodgers. They, they got a lot of money. I mean, they're definitely above the the um, the uh, luxury tax luxury tax threshold. So they're going to be paying some penalties and fines here. But you know what? At the end of the day, in my opinion, what it boils down to, you give yourself a chance to win another World Series. That's going to be a scary rotation with Walker Buehler, uh, Clayton Kershaw, and then you add Trevor Bauer to the mix, and he's got a few other you know pretty solid guys in there too. Um, I don't see any reason why, especially coming off having just won the World Series this past year, that they're not going to be the favorite again uh, going into 2021. Pike division, I mean, the Padres have closed the gap. San Diego has definitely closed the gap. I mean, they went out and got uh, Blake Snell and and, uh, Hugh Darvish and um, and certainly made themselves a much more competitive team point, but I just think the Dodgers, at least on paper right now, just seeing what we're seeing here on February 5th, a full month before spring training really gets kicked off, I think the Dodgers are clearly the favorite. And then as I was driving home from the Tampa area uh, here earlier, just looking from traffic, it's pretty pretty hectic out there tonight. Um, as I was getting into town here, um, another breaking news, uh, Major League signing, the Braves have agreed to uh, I believe I saw it was a four-year deal with a fifth-year option with Marcelo Zuna, who had a monster season uh, this past year with the Braves during the 60-game uh, COVID-shortened season, uh, almost won the Triple Crown in the National League, in fact. And so he uh, he re-ups with the Braves. Atlanta really needed a piece of, of uh, weaponry to their offense. Um, from what I can tell, it's actually a pretty solid uh, – Pretty good deal. They, I think they probably actually got him for under what he could have gotten had he held out a little bit longer. Uh, so this gives their lineup uh, yet another weapon. And if he can continue to perform the way he did this past year for the next several seasons, he gives Atlanta a really solid weapon. So, um, you know, we've seen the last couple of years, and I think this past offseason that we're in right now, in particular due to COVID, a lot of teams were a little bit leery to – of the big dollars out there because the revenues aren't coming in the way they have been in the years past. But I think that we've are, I think what we're seeing Alan here, honestly, is the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, there's a new collective bargaining agreement that hopefully will be agreed to here at some point by the players association and major league baseball, probably within the next year or so. So I think you're going to see teams start to spend even more 
And um, it's a good time to be a major league ball player because the league average right now, the league minimum, I should say, is $700,000, something like that. So, um, you know, I'll sign up and play for one game. I'll take one pitch and, play <laughs> and, and t- take my take my money and come home. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, you're right. I mean, baseball, if, if you can really play – it's definitely a great sport to have your your kid or an athlete in because a lot of those contracts are guaranteed. Baseball is one of those things where, you know, if you take good care of yourself, I mean, of course, anybody's prone to an injury, but it's less likely. And you can have a very, very financially sound career in baseball if you're able to get in, you know, make it to the major leagues. I know that sounds easier said than done. Not easy to make it to the major leagues. But if you do make it and you make and you perform well, there's a huge upside to your career and your financial stability many, many years to come, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's grown immensely. I mean, you go back to 94 when you had the strike, and obviously that was over the very issue we're talking about, money. And, you know, I don't know what the player averages were back then or the league minimum was back then, but – if you look at what the big contracts were, for instance, Barry Bonds, when he left the Pirates in 92 for the 93 season, went to the Giants. He was, I want to say, it was a six-year deal, $42 million over that entire time. So to tell you how much baseball has grown, that was an average of about $7 million a year back then. You got guys riding the bench right now that are making $7 million. You got relief pitchers who are making more than that per season. And Trevor Bauer, his average – I think for his first year coming up with the Dodgers, is going to be right about $40 million. So that entire contract that Bonds signed back in uh, 92 or 93 is basically one year. What Trevor Bauer is about to make pitches for the Dodgers, over a million dollars a start, which is uh, is certainly remarkable. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's crazy how it's grown. You know, it did take a big hit uh, this um this past season due to the revenues being lower. But uh, I will say this, and I know you and I have talked about this off, uh, off air many times. I am so excited about the season being right around the corner. That's one of the things I look forward to. You get to the Super Bowl, you have the NCAA basketball tournament shortly thereafter, and then baseball starts to kick, up, uh, kick off again. And um, it's always a great time. And, you know, the funny thing about it is, no matter what team you're a fan of, your season ended the year before, and you get into this portion of the year, and it's a clean slate, and you always go into the year believing, hey, this could be the year kind of thing. So um, I know your Yankees are are looking pretty solid. They've made some really good pitching acquisitions. Um, Solid lineup, of course, over there for sure. And I think it's going to be a fun season. I think there's still some moves left to be made. There's a few more free agents that will probably sign within the next couple of days. Um, but now the big story, of course, is this uh, this game this weekend between uh, the uh, defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs and, of course, our, uh, our hometown Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, this is going to be a great game. I, I, I don't see a blowout on either side uh, short of somebody getting injured. I mean, if Kansas City happens to lose Patrick Mahomes or Tampa loses Tom Brady, then I can see maybe a, a landslide one direction or the other. But tell me what your thoughts are, you know, going into this game Sunday. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be a great matchup. Uh, you have Patrick Mahomes and, and Tom Brady, and you have kind of the old GOAT versus the new up-and-coming GOAT. And mm-hmm. both teams are going to be bringing their best. They both are very capable of winning this game. You know, you look at Patrick Mahomes. He's a guy who's 25 but very, very smart, has a high football IQ, very accurate passer, strong arm, can throw on the run, can backpedal and throw, very dynamic. And then you have a guy who's, you know, in my opinion, the GOAT. He's got six rings, same amount of rings as Michael Jordan. Going now to go up one on Michael Jordan, you're in a class all by yourself already. And then you have a situation where greatness versus greatness, I just think at the end of the day, the Bucks are going to pull out this game. I know that the Chiefs are favorite. I know that they're, they're the ones who are, are the defending Super Bowl champions. But I just feel as if the Chiefs have some superstars on their team, but I feel like the Bucks have an all-around better team. And I just feel as if the defense is going to be stifling. I, I agree with you to your point. There is not going to be, a, I don't believe, a blowout on either side. I think it's going to be a very close competitive game I think mistakes are going to be loom large and whoever makes them but I just feel as if this is the Bucks year and I feel as if the Bucks are going to get the job done do something that's never been done in history win number one seven seven rings for Brady for a different team and be the first team to win a Super Bowl in their home field I, I just feel as if the Bucks are going to win this this weekend those are my thoughts what are your thoughts on the game you know, I'm not sure what to make of it yet because, you know, on one hand, you know, you got the greatest of all time in Tom Brady. That certainly goes without saying. And you can't count him out. You know, I mean, there was a point back in December where the Bucks were maybe, I think, six and three, seven and three, somewhere in there. And you kind of looked at their schedule going into December and you thought, well, you know, if they get on a bad track here, they might not even make the playoffs. And so just making the playoffs this year was kind of like, hey, we got over that hump. We haven't made the postseason in 13 years. Tom Brady's not the guy you count out. You know, he is the comeback comeback kid, or in this case, the comeback, you know, elder statesman of the game, so to speak. So I think that, um, you know, you look back to just a few years ago, trailing in the Super Bowl at halftime, 28-3 to to Atlanta, and they come back and win um, late in the game. And I believe that was the game that went to overtime, if I'm not mistaken. And they won their first ever Super Bowl and went to overtime. Um, on the same hand, though, you look at last year, the Kansas City Chiefs, high-powered offense, and every playoff game they played in, they were down. You know, they were down, I think, 20 or 24 points to, to Baltimore at one point. And I remember talking to you about that, like, hey, Patrick Mahomes is a great quarterback, but they just can't get it done. And then suddenly it was like, where did this come from? They scored 35 unanswered points, and then they did the same thing in the Super Bowl. You know, I remember that uh, silly celebration that San Francisco did in the Super Bowl where they thought, hey, we got this thing wrapped up. We got another Super Bowl, take back home to California. And then suddenly it was like, what happened? And the Chiefs went on a run, and they ended up pulling it off. So I think that the matchup in this is – maybe one of the best in that regard because you really cannot count either one of these two teams out until the last second 
minutes off the clock. And I think the key to this game is going to certainly be, um, you know, the lack of mistakes. And I think those mistakes, if there are any interceptions or, or what have you, are going to be magnified. Now, I, I'll say this, and this is not a, a down Tom Brady, because he is the greatest of all time. Somehow, in the NFC title game, he threw three interceptions in the second half, and somehow the Bucks defense was able to hold the Packers down to uh, to not punch it in. Even if one of those situations they come away with a touchdown, we'd be talking about the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl instead of the, the Buccaneers. So I think that um, the key for Tampa Bay is to keep Tom Brady in the pocket and keep him upright. You can't force uh, or allow any sacks or anything like that. Um, you got to play a solid defense. You got to get, you got to get to Patrick Mahomes. You got to make him rush a little bit because he does throw the ball a little too far sometimes. You know, when he is uh, when he is rushed. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you you have some great points there, and with the mistakes. On either side, those things are going to be magnified tenfold, whether it be interception, whether it be fumble. Those things are going to loom large for whoever makes them and whoever benefits because that's going to be really the deciding factor, I believe, in this game. You do not want to give the Chiefs more opportunities to score. They are a powerhouse on offense, and that's going to be the thing. You know, one of the big th- components about this game, too, is going to be two things about the Bucks. They they have to get pressure, and they also have to do very good coverage. That's the thing. They, they're they going to have to play very, very good coverage. I know that they didn't they, – they weren't – they were 21st in the league in coverage, but they're going to have to be a, a very good coverage team. To your point about the Packers, that was one thing, you know, watching that game – I felt as if the Bucks were getting a little too pass-happy. They were throwing the ball too much, especially in the second half. All they had to do was manufacture a drive using most of the running game to chew up some clock because they had a very good lead at that point. And I was even telling my son, the Bucks are going to throw a, throw a pick because they were just throwing the ball too much. And I know some of those call play calls were Tom Brady's, but I felt that, you know, in the NFL, if you keep throwing the ball, someone's going to get a tip ball, it's going to happen. You're going to get an interception. They can't have those three turnovers. That was one light at the end of the tunnel was that when they did turn the ball over, they did give it to the Packers deep in their territory, and they stopped them. Their their defense was was spot on. You know, there wasn't much that the Packers did, even with getting the ball on the offensive side because of the Bucks' defense. The Bucks defense is going to have to play like that, but they're going to have to just not give the ball over. They're going to have to. They're going to have to eliminate those turnovers, and you do that by running the ball more. They were doing actually very good with the running game. I was surprised that they got away from it, and especially in that third quarter, and they made the game very close. Their defense is going to have to be stifling. That goes with safety help, definitely. Levante David and Devin White, those guys are going to step up, and then the defensive line is going to have to step up. So they need a Herculean act from the Bucks defense, which I believe they will get to win this game. There's no doubt about it. 
Yeah, I just think that the matchup overall is going to be one of the best we've seen because, again, you're talking about two just different dynamics in terms of their play style, but two quarterbacks that, you know, they've been there, they've experienced it. And I do think that there's going to be keys to what would cause one team to win versus not. I mean, Kansas City, if they if the biggest thing you just nailed it right on the head there, if if Tampa cannot cover Kansas City's wide receivers, and if they can't stop Travis Kelsey, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. They're they're not gonna they're not gonna know what to do. But I think if they can find a way to contain the deep passing game, which has been one of the biggest things that Kansas City's in the last two years, then this is gonna be a closer matchup. Now the same side on, on Tampa side if you can take Gronk out of the game as much as you can, even if you don't throw to him, I think they still have a, a much, much better opportunity because the fact that he's a threat out there, they might double team him or they might, they may cover him differently than they would anybody else. So that leaves a little bit of a weakness when it comes to covering some of the other receivers. It's going to be a great game. I think it may come down to just like we've seen in several other Super Bowls for Tom Brady, it may come down to a field goal you know, as time expires. Um, Let me ask you this. This is a little bit of a different subject on the Super Bowl. Um, Given that this is the first time we've ever seen a home team uh, playing in their home stadium, which is remarkable, how do you feel about them not firing the cannons? That's that's the big, for those of you out there who are not familiar with the Buccaneers, when they score a touchdown or they get into the red zone, kick a field goal, what have you, they're the pewter pirates. They fire these giant cannons from, I believe it's the north end zone there at Raymond James Stadium. The NFL is not going to allow them to do that when it's happened because it's supposed to be a neutral fight. What are your feelings on that, Alan, as, uh, as this game is purchased around Sunday? Yeah, they did make that announcement. You're absolutely right about that, Aaron. And the only time they are going to shoot those cannons is when they introduce the Bucks players, and they said that will be it. No first down blast, no three-point blast, and no touchdown blast at all. I, I, I thought it was a little bit of a, a bummer for the, for the Bucks fans. I can, I can understand them being disappointed, I would say is the word, about them not being able to fire their cannons. That's just one of the great things about playing for the Bucks. You got that pirate ship, and you get to hit the cannons. But I, as a person who always looks at the, the glass half empty, I still feel as if, yes, they don't get the cannons, but they still have home, home field advantage. There's going to be a lot, a lot of Bucks fans at this game. Let Make no mistake about it. The fact that they're letting in, you know, it won't be full capacity, of course, due to COVID, but they are going to let in, I believe the number is around 20,000 fans. 7,500 of them are going to be healthcare workers that are have gotten their shots, both shots. A lot of those, a lot of those people that they're going to let in, as far as healthcare workers, they have to be local and more than likely going to be rooting for the Bucks. So it is going to feel like a Bucks home game when it's all said and done with the fans. So I still feel the the Bucks do have a home field advantage here in the Super Bowl, even less the Cannons. I mean, yes. It kind of was a little bit of a bummer that they can't shoot them off. I I understand where the league is coming from. They're trying to make it as, quote-unquote, neutral as possible because they, the Super Bowl is supposed to be a neutral site. 
it just this is the first time in history the team that's in it is hosting it, and that's usually you don't draw it up that way. So I understand where the league is coming from. They're trying to make it as neutral as possible, but I still feel at the end of the day the Bucks are still going to have a huge advantage in this game. It's their home field advantage. What are your thoughts on the Cannons and the Bucks maybe having the home field advantage? Well, I mean, the home field advantage is the fact that this is their home stadium, just in general. Now, I'm not sure, given that this is a relatively warmer climate, you know, if this was, you know, Soldier Field and the, and the Bears were hosting the Super Bowl, or probably a more likely one would be the Giants hosting the Super Bowl in MetLife Stadium. Um, the weather part would be more of a factor there. Outside of the crowd noise, I just don't know if it's really necessarily a big home field advantage in that sense. So, uh, you know, as far as the cannons, you know, to me it's it's this way. You know, we've seen Super Bowls played in some unique places. Uh, We saw Houston several years ago, and they have a retractable roof. So not every stadium has that. I think that might be the only one or two that has it. uh, maybe the I think the Cowboys have it to so the Cardinals, but you have a roof that opens and closes, so there's a neat um, a neat thing there, and you know it's something that you don't see in every stadium. So I think that at the minimum, I mean, let those cannons shoot off for both teams. Why 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 does that have to be shut down for both? Just it's, it's part of the atmosphere. It's part of the part of the mystique. And I've been to several Bucks games over the years, and I know you have too. I mean you look forward to hearing that cannon go off every time Tampa gets in the red zone or scores a touchdown or puts points on the board. So why, why can't they just say, okay, well, we're going to do this for both teams because it's part of the, part of the process of having the, the Bucks, um, having that at the stadium. Now at the same time, I want to say that in 2008, I guess it was technically 2009, I believe they actually disassembled the ship and took that out of the stadium. I could be wrong on that, but I believe it was either that Super Bowl or back in 2001, 20 years ago, when the Giants played the Ravens there. I, I believe they disassembled it. So maybe maybe from that perspective it's understandable. But, again, my thought is this. You know, you play the Super Bowl, like you go play it in New Orleans. Well, what goes on in New Orleans in the early part of February or late part of January? You have all the Mardi Gras stuff going on there. So – Part of the reason you pick a city to have a Super Bowl in is because of all the things that go on around it. You have all kinds of venues and all kinds of, you know, entertainment going on. If it's in Miami, you got South Beach. Um, if it's in, you know, Dallas, you know, all the great stuff you have around Dallas to do, all the different things to do. So in my opinion, to, to leave out the cannon and find a way to make it right for both sides, but if you leave out the cannon – that's part of the stadium. That's part of the atmosphere there. So it, it, to me, it's kind of a little bit of a letdown. It almost doesn't give the full effect of how the game is going to be played there. So that's disappointing to me in that sense. Yeah, I mean, definitely I can understand where the fans and yourself are coming from, you know, with them being let down. I, I was a little surprised they came out of that. That seemed to come out of nowhere, you know, that they're not going to allow the cannons, you know, but they're going to allow it when they introduce the players and that's it. I thought about it more. I was like, okay, I can understand where the league is coming from. It is, it's not technically a home game, you know, as far as where the league looks at it. So it's okay. 
you know, at the end of the day, the Bucks are still going to be playing in their home fields, and they're going to have, for what I could see, the home field advantage, meaning they'll have more fans there that are for the Bucks than they are going to be for the Chiefs. And I think the Bucks will say the same thing. At the end of the day, it matters on how we play. That's going to and our execution. And at the end of the day, when it comes to winning Super Bowl, that's what it's going to come down to. You know, big-time players step up. That's what they're going to need. And that's what the, what's going to be uh, most important. I will say for the, the fans that are going to this game, the people who are enjoying the festivities, you're right, it brings in a lot of venue, a lot of revenue to have the Super Bowl in your city. This is the second time that that's happened for me, way back in 2003 when the Bucks were in the Super Bowl the last time. I was able to witness how, how electric and exciting it is to have a Super Bowl come through your town. I saw more celebrities than you could probably even think of. Having said that, that was pre-COVID. I do want to let the fans that are listening <laughs> out there, I just want to <laughs> mention one thing to them. You know, I, your safety, I care about your safety. I've seen a lot of parties that are going to be thrown this weekend, a lot of celebrity parties. COVID is still real. It's still out there. So just be very diligent. Be very careful when you're out there partying. And take take precautions because uh, COVID is not over. I was joking with my wife saying, hey, everybody's having a party. I guess COVID is over. But the reality is it's not over. It's, it's very serious. So wear your mask and protect yourself while you're out there. I know there's going to be a lot of temptation, a lot of parties, but make sure you follow your safety protocols. <laughs> I just want to say that to my fans. No, no, absolutely, and, and that's the one thing we can't forget is we're still, you know, still in the thick of things with how serious things are. Um, nothing wrong with having fun. Uh, I don't, I don't believe personally in, uh, you know, let's let's go lock ourselves in the basements or anything like that uh, to get away from everything. Have fun, but let's certainly, absolutely, as you mentioned there, let's uh, let's follow the protocols, let's follow the rules, let's play it safe, let's keep our distance and. I think everybody will stay safe. Let, let the guys on the field tackle each other. Everyone else just keep that six feet between yourselves, and we should be okay. So, um, Now, interesting thing that we talked about, you and I, earlier this week that I wanted to address here tonight. Uh, earlier in the week, we saw uh, a game, I believe it was the Atlanta Hawks, yeah. playing against uh, the Lakers. And LeBron James gets into it with a fan. Tell me your perspective on what happened there between uh, uh, the course side Karen and, of course, uh, LeBron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely it became a big, big story. What happened, it looked like LeBron was getting into it with a female. When I first saw it, it looked like he was really getting into a heated argument with a female on the sidelines that was sitting courtside. I found out, you know, doing some more research, he actually, what ended up happening was LeBron was actually arguing, you know, I wouldn't say arguing, but they were going back and forth with a gentleman in the stand that was sitting courtside. They were exchanging back and forth, LeBron and the gentleman, and then the guy's wife, the courtside Karen is what they labeled her, decided to jump in and stand up for her man and started cursing out LeBron at this point, when she was going back and forth with LeBron, throwing insults and name-calling, 
she had pulled her mask down. She had her mask on, like more like a chin strap than a mask. <laughs> and being that they were going back and forth and cursing and, and going back, security came over. They came over and they asked them to leave. You know, courtside seats, for those who don't know, if you go to an NBA game and you're sitting courtside, you're talking about some very, very expensive tickets. I would say anywhere from eight to maybe fifteen grand per ticket, depending on availability, depending on the teams. But being that it's the Lakers, that's a big market team. Hawks are pretty good. You're talking somewhere in that range per ticket. So they got kicked out, so that hurts. Courtside Karen was really upset. And, you know, they, inter- they she basically made a couple of social media posts. It, it ended up getting up to LeBron. After the game, they asked LeBron, hey, what, what happened? What were your thoughts? And LeBron basically said, you know, me and the guy, we were just having a healthy, you know, exchange. You know, maybe it wasn't too pleasant, but we were going back and forth. No harm, no foul. His wife jumped in because they felt as if it was a security breach with her pulling up and down the mask and cursing. They asked her to leave. LeBron himself said, you know, I didn't I, – I don't think they should have been thrown out, but I understand why they did throw him out. So it turned into a big, big fiasco. <laughs> Hindsight being 2020, I was actually thinking about inviting – Courtside character to our show here on the Aaron and Aaron Sports <laughs> Radio Show. <laughs> I was thought about it, but then I was like, you know what? She has a real potty mouth. It probably wouldn't be a good idea, but it would be nice to hear her her side of the story. And I decided not to, to send an invitation. But I agree with, with security asking her to leave. I thought that was a good move. You know, you can't take the risk of him going back and forth and her actually getting into LeBron's face, especially without a mask. What are your thoughts on what you saw and, and the story with the courtside Karen? Well, let me just start with this here. Hold on one second. Oh, I'm sorry. Your seats are now gone. So, no, I, I, this is a classic case for me, and I'll be real honest with you here. This is a classic case for me. Uh, I'm not a huge LeBron fan. Uh, I kind of feel like sometimes he's cool himself, but I will go out on on, um, on this note here. In this case, when I watched it the first time, I read the article the first time, I didn't read all the facts. I didn't read all the in-between stuff. So I will say this. To his defense, the way it looked at first was, hey, he doesn't like somebody yakking at him, had him tossed out of the game. That's what it looked like at first to me. When I went back and watched the full thing and got all the facts, I think they deserve to be thrown out. You can't be, in my, in my opinion, sports, whether it's a basketball game, a hockey game, um, you know, baseball game, whatever it is, it's supposed to be a family environment. And I've actually been at sporting events before where people got drunk, people started throwing stuff, people started cursing, swearing, whatever. They throw you out. They don't care who you are. They don't care how much you paid for the ticket. They don't care who started it. It happened plenty of times before. So when I went back and looked at all the facts and got all the the, um, the real story as things actually occurred, I, I, I believe that they were right to, to toss both him and her out of the game uh, or out of the, the arena there. 
So I think it's a good lesson to learn there that you can't always go by the first, and this, this applies to a lot of things, I guess, in our society nowadays too. Um, can't always go by what you thought you saw the first time. You got to actually dig for the facts and make sure you have everything in line before you make that judgment call. So in my opinion, um, not too often that I agree with LeBron James, but in this case, I think that he was, um, I think he wanted to remain neutral. I don't think he wanted to have a, a yeah, they should stay or no, they shouldn't kind of thing. But I, in my opinion, that guy was going up the line. You start players getting nasty with them there, there's no need for you to be there. You shouldn't have paid the money for the ticket and you shouldn't be in the arena, you know, in the first place. So I think that was probably the right call. And, um, you know, to me, watching some of the post uh, reaction to it, I think LeBron actually handled it very well. I, I, I definitely be on his side on that side of things. He just kind of was asked the question and, you know, hit the topic and moved on. But then you go on to, I think it was Twitter or Instagram uh, that I saw the video on. It's almost like she's trying to get famous off of it, trying to, to um, you know, cash in on her own stupidity. I mean, which, you know, there's a lot of that goes on in America nowadays. But in this case, we probably shouldn't even bring it up anymore because all it's doing is drawing more attention to someone who was negative from the get-go. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I you brought up some magnificent points. I definitely do feel this is a perfect case where people in America and people on social media, they're so quick to post their opinion without getting all the facts. You know, when I first saw it, you know, I, it looked like he, even, you know, this, they just showed the, a small clip version of it. It looked like he was starting up with a female courtside and getting mm-hmm. into a real bad spat with her. You know, the guy wasn't even in the picture at all when I saw the clip. But like you said, I went ahead and researched and got all of the facts. I, I even heard his press conference, what he had to say about it. I watched the entire video as far as from where it started to where it ended. I saw security asking him to leave. After you got all of those factors involved, it went from me looking like, hey, LeBron's coming off like kind of soft because he's letting this girl going back and forth with her, engaging with her. And obviously, I agree with you, your point, she comes across as a woman who's definitely looking to get some attention, her 15 minutes of fame. She does not look like the type of person who's trying to be quiet and all this attention just showed up on her doorstep. No, you, you look like the type of person who's advertising and more than advertising to get a spotlight. So that was the, to, to, to your point, you have to get all the facts involved. Once I got all of the facts involved, you know, whether your feeling is you love LeBron or you don't like LeBron, I like to get all the facts. Once I got all the facts involved and I got a whole picture and scope of what happened, then I said, you know what, I agree with you. LeBron did not look that bad. He did not ask him. If you watch the video, he did not ask him to kick him out. He never said escort him out. He never commanded them to throw him out. He, in fact, said he didn't think they should have been thrown out, but he understood why they were thrown out. To me, LeBron didn't look so bad in this situation. And also, I agree with security asking to leave. You, you're perfectly right. This is a lesson that somebody who's listening should understand that just because you pay 10 to 15 grand on a ticket, you can't just act any way you want to pay, any way you want to behave because you paid an exorbitant amount or a lot of money for a ticket. 
if you don't follow the rules or guidelines, you're going to get escorted out. And kudos to them for doing that, for, for making that judgment call to, to ask them to leave. It is a family event. You brought up a good point as far as you've seen things happen. Just a quick story. I actually went to a game, Ray Stadium game, and I had to break up a fight. I was in the middle between <laughs> somebody threw, threw they threw a cup at the person behind me, and it hit them underneath their eye and made a very nice gash, and they started to go. And I got right in the middle and like, whoa, you you know, stretch out my arms like you stay on that side, you stay on that side until security. I held them back both until security came there and, and helped me out. And people was like, yo, they were calling me a hero. Like, you're a hero, man. You're a hero. I was being a peacemaker, and people was calling me a hero for not letting this thing get escalate and go really bad. It's just that I was in a spot in between them. That was the thing to do. Like, hey, break this. Like, hey, you stay your way. I, you stay on the other end. I kept my arms extended. I'm thankful that no one, someone did get hurt, but no one got seriously hurt. And I'm glad security helped. And I felt like I was a hero, but I'm glad nobody got hurt. But things can escalate really fast in a game. Just well, I want to make about this, it. Uh, I want to make this announcement, uh, Alan, here. Uh, hold on just a second. <laughs> you heard it first yeah. on the Alan and Aaron Sports Talk Radio program. Alan has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. So. Yeah, man, I definitely would love to have a Nobel Peace Prize. But yeah, I mean, I just did the Peacemaker, and I was I was thankful I did. I was a really just was in the heat of the moment, just trying to help out as best I can. But it just goes to show you, if some of the things that you like about seeing the fans at games, some of those things could be annoying too. Meaning, mm-hmm. they just started letting fans back in the NBA. In December, we're now a month and a half in, slightly under two months, and you already had an incident where somebody's getting escorted out because these things happen quickly. And be careful when you go to a sports venue, you know, because you just never know what can happen. And especially, you know, people drinking alcohol, emotions get hot, maybe the team is losing, and things these things escalate. So... Courtside Karen, she if she was looking for her fifteen minutes of fame, she definitely she I give her I tip my hat, she definitely got her fifteen minutes of fame. She responded to uh LeBron's tweet about Courtside Karen is mad, bad, bad with the seven emojis. She responded to his tweet and she had a bunch of views. I mean her and her <laughs> husband definitely got they got a lot of publicity because of this stunt. I don't know if it was planned or it just happened, but and they started checking both of their profiles that, um, yeah, I mean, but one thing I will say about LeBron is this. LeBron sometimes will go back and forth with fans. You know, nothing is turned into an incident as bad as this one did. But I will say, going forward, my advice to LeBron at this point would be, you're going to have to take the high road going forward. Because if another incident happens this year, Regardless of whether you were right or wrong, this one he kind of skated by not looking bad in, but I guarantee if it happens again, it's going to be very bad for him. He's going to have to just ignore it and let it go. 
He did have a, a minor incident early this year where somebody, a coach from the other team, he was really excited towards the end of the third quarter where LeBron missed. LeBron went off. Use it as motivation when you see somebody acting a fool, but do not respond to it. What are your thoughts exactly, on that? Exactly, yeah. No, and, and I, I think that's that's the, you know, that's that's where the role model part comes in, in my opinion. Um, and like it or not, you know, whether you're LeBron James or, you know, whoever else it is in the NBA or any sport for that matter, kids want to emulate you. They want to, you know, they want to um, buy your jersey. They want to be just like you. You know, I mean, can't say that I never, when I was a kid, didn't want to be like Michael Jordan. I mean, who didn't? You know, I think that um, regardless of whether they're positive or negative or whatever the case is, that's the thing you have to keep in check there is that you are somebody's role model. And so I think that's a perfect example there uh, of sportsmanship and, you know, making sure that you don't cross that line. Because once you do that, the media is going to catch on to that quicker than anybody else, of course, and they're going to start looking for it. So from a public relations standpoint and from an image standpoint, it really would help LeBron to just look the other way, you know. Um, now, I know there's things you can't look the other way from, you know, certain things that are said. and You know, I've heard some stories the last couple of years about things that are said at sporting events that are just way over the top that should never happen. But I get that. Um, but I'll kind of go back to maybe the worst, uh, worst situation or maybe the best example of a worst situation. What happened in Detroit was the end of the 2004, was the beginning of the 2004 season, um, 2004, 2005 season, where you had players going up into the stands, you had fans coming down onto the court, taking swings at each other. So at least it didn't lead to anything like that. That was uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills, I think, that happened that, between uh, Indiana and Detroit. So at least it didn't come to that. At least it didn't come to the situation where you have a bunch of legal stuff going on and a bunch of, um, you know, arrests being made and that kind of stuff. At least it was, you know, stopped before it got to that point. But, um, again, it was really an unfortunate situation, and I think that it probably could have been handled better on both sides, but at the end of the day, at least we didn't see a melee, you know, through there on the court. So that's, I guess you got to look for the positives and things, and that's probably the positive right there. No, you're absolutely right. you got to look at the positives. It, it could have been worse. The situation could have escalated and got a whole lot worse. I've seen, you know, some bad incidents with the fans. So, yeah, they escorted him. Yeah, maybe Courtside Karen got her attention, but at the end of the day, it could have been a lot worse. She could have ran up on on him and with no mask on and <laughs> went off. Or but it it didn't happen. They they kudos to security. They went ahead with proactive and just asked him to leave. And that's another point is that if you spend that type of money on some tickets, do not act the fool. That's one thing that I – that's actually <laughs> – I give her and her husband credit in this regard. That is a bucket list item for me. I don't know if people know that, but I'll say this on the Aaron Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show. 
a bucket list item for Allen is for me and a guest to sit courtside on an NBA game. Nobody in front of me, not row two, not row three, just like she was, not one person in front of me. That is actually a bucket list item. She's living it, and she said she's 25. You know, she kept sticking with that line. There was a few people who disagreed with her age, but if she's 25, then she's 25, but she's already living a bucket list item. So I give her, I give her and her husband credit on that. Courtside seats, for me to a, uh, an NBA basketball game is a bucket list item for, for myself, Alan. <laughs> One of these days I'm going to do it. But I guarantee this much, I will not be doing what her and her husband did with any NBA celebrity or athlete. I'll be trying to get an autograph, <laughs> trying to get a picture or something. There's no way you're going to throw me out because I'm joined back and forth with, a, with one of the players. That's not going to happen. I could guarantee that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, don't yeah. get me wrong. I think there's times where you see somebody that maybe you don't care for, and obviously they were they were in opposition, I think, to LeBron. I think they were from Miami, so maybe it has something to do with him leaving Miami a few years ago. I don't know for sure. There's probably more of a backstory to that than, than what we know at this point. But, um, you know, you have to just keep that stuff to yourself. You can't be yelling obscenities, and, you know, especially, again, I mean – Think about it this way. You paid $15,000 for that seat, and the guy next to you is drunk, and he's wearing up and down a storm. That's going to make my experience there a lot worse. I'm going to be upset that I paid all that money for, for a ticket, and then people are going all crazy. So so it's definitely right, and I'm sure there's probably uh, things in the ticket agreement with the, the player, you know, that, um, you know, go uh, – you know, go. I don't know. Just to, to me, it seems like the the right thing was for what happened to happen, and for them to to um to have ejected uh, them from the stadium. And again, I think uh, at the end of the day, I think I could probably underscore more than anything else the fact that nobody nobody got injured, nobody got hurt. There was no I mean, feelings of hurt, certainly, but no one was uh, you know being punched or trampled on or you know anything like that. Yeah, that's right. I, kudos to that, and nobody got hurt, nobody got injured. You know that's the thing. And 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 one thing that I really want to emphasize about this story is that she predominantly got thrown out because she was not only yelling profanities, but she pulled her mask down, and she was doing this, even creating another risk, health risk. So wear your mask. It's not a chin strap. It's a mask. So. The way she was yelling and throwing out profanities, you could have definitely heard her with her mask all the way up. <laughs> you know? So she could have got her point across just as well with her mask up. And, you know, be safe out there. And, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. When you go to a game, you could have some – it's a kid's event. People got to understand that, too, that, yes, you're drinking alcoholic beverages, but you are going to a family function it's a family game. There could be my kids who range anywhere from 5, 9, and 11. I don't want them hearing those profanities. I understand you might not be a fan of LeBron. You might not like the fact that he might be scoring on your team. I get it. But you have to think about others around you, and you've got to think 
hey, is it worth me getting into it with this player to be kicked out of the seat that I just paid a lot of money for? I would have to say, venture to say no. And LeBron's thing, he's going to, like you said, to your point, he is a role model. This is two incidents. I know that they, they, he was able to skate past them pretty good, un, not looking bad, but this is a warning. You're going to have to take the high road. I know that the fans can be annoying. I know they cross a line a lot of times. I get it. But you are a leader, and you need – you don't want to have this as a bad reputation on you that you engage fans on a negative way when they say something that's not flattering. You're just going to have to just use this motivation and just move on. Ignore it. That's it. Take the high road. I know I know it's, it's, yeah, it can, no, I, can suck. No, go ahead. I agree with you 100%. I, I, you know, the other thing, too, I, I think um, not that he never had this happen, but the one guy that LeBron has always been compared to as much as Jordan and I'm sure that Jordan over the years probably had hecklers. I mean, probably every game. But I think if you're comparing the two people as a player or as a great player of all time kind of thing or greatest of their era, Michael Jordan handled himself a lot better than I think than LeBron did. So that's something that maybe he can learn from. Is look, hey, I've always been compared to Michael. You know, I wore 23 for, for Michael Jordan kind of thing. Maybe this is something he can learn from and, and – Say, hey, you know what, Michael would have handled it differently. Maybe I should do the same thing. So um, I want to talk about something else here tonight, too, that I think is uh, very interesting. It finally happened um, this week. It was kind of anticipated uh, back over to baseball for a few moments. Great Red Sox player, um, just a terrific hitter in general. Justin Pedroia, he announced his retirement this week. He had some injury issues the last couple of years. It really kind of hampered his uh, ability to be out on the field. I know you're a Yankee fan, but Dustin Pedroia is one of those guys that you you hated to face him, but you loved to watch him play, even if he was playing against your team. Tell me a little bit about your uh, perspective there on Dustin Pedroia and his retirement from the game. Yeah, Dustin Pedroia, there's a, there's a lot I can say about him. And, and, and before I get into that, if Dustin Pedroia is listening, definitely um, I really want to say these words from the heart. Dustin Pedroia, to me, is an out-flat stud player. He is the epitome. This is coming from a Yankees fan of what baseball, to me, is all about. He's a guy who was undersized, who came into the league, who had some talent, but there was guys who were bigger, stronger, and even had more talent. But this guy worked his tail off. He did not use the odds against him. He worked really hard. He listened to his coaches. He listened to people we played around with. He took instructions very well, and he gritted it out on the field. I am a Yankees fan, diehard Yankees fan, but when I see Dustin Pedroia, I have nothing respect for him. Yes, he he was, as a Yankee fan, could be like the nuisance, like, uh uh-oh, that guy's coming up to bat now. But this guy, I respected his game so much. And one of the big things about Dustin Pedroia is that me and Dustin Pedroia, I would have to venture that he, they say, quote, unquote, that he's 5'9". I stood next to Dustin Pedroia at the Ray Stadium and got Dustin Pedroia's autograph. I am not going to lie to you. I have a Dustin Pedroia's autograph, and I don't think he's 5'9". I would venture to say, I mean, I could be wrong. Dustin Pedroia is more than welcome to come on the show to debate me on this. 
to me, he looked more like 5'6", okay? Not to say that, that those three inches matter, but I would venture to say I was taller than him, and I'm about 5'8". And this guy is an absolute competitor. I mean, this guy, an MVP, three rings, the guy played hard every time he played on the field. I watched his his Zoom kind of like his retirement, why he went into retirement, and I kind of wish I was on that Zoom call. And he, he went through the process of what he had to go through because of his leg injuries, what he went through over the last two to three years, and why he came to the decision of retirement. I agree with his decision because he had to work so hard to get back where he's at, and the guy can't run anymore. He had to basically reconstruct his whole knee, and he was in a lot of pain, he, he he just had his, he had a really really bad knee problems, and it was it was it was time. And if he if he could still play out there, he probably would. But this guy is an outright competitor. To me, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. If he doesn't get into the Hall of Fame, I don't know who is. And those are my thoughts about Dustin Pedroia. I want to kind of get your thoughts more on it on Dustin Pedroia. Well, I mean, he's definitely a competitor. Um, I definitely don't see him being out of the game for too long. In fact, I've heard rumors uh, in the past about um, you know him possibly being a manager at some point. Wouldn't be a shock to see him get that opportunity here. You know, at some point here in not too distant future, probably not in Boston because I know they're they're you know pretty set with Cora as their uh, as their manager now. Um, Hall of Fame. You know, I'm looking at his career numbers right now. Um, 1,800 hits, 140 homers, just a hair under 300 as a lifetime hitter, 725 RBIs, 138 steals. Granted, he's a second baseman, so he's in a different class playing at, at a different position. It's a position where there's not a lot of guys that hit a lot of homers. Um, you know, I, I just I, I can't see him as the first out off in the for sure. And looking at the spread of his numbers over the years, I mean, his best season would be back in 2011. He hit 307 that year, 21 homers, 91 RBIs. But he never hit more than 17 home runs in any other season after that, or before that even. So I, I can't really say he's a Hall of Famer. He may be a Red Sox Hall of Famer, but I just don't think the numbers are there overall. I mean, he's not even a 2,000 hit. I think he was definitely a good player, definitely a heart and soul type player. Um I just don't know whether he fits in, into the, the hall discussion or not. Um, one thing that you're judged by, actually two, two main characteristics of a Hall of Fame player are where do your stats put you all time? You know, are you the top a top five uh, home run hitter in the history of the game? And then how do you compare to your contemporaries? And I'd have to look at the stats a little bit more thoroughly to see where he falls in terms of the range of other second basemen played from 06 when he was a rookie up until 2019 when he was 35. Um, I think there's probably at least two or three second basemen that are probably better statistically than he was. It's hard for me to say he's a Hall of Famer, but again, I agree. Heart and soul, I mean, look, the Red Sox won the World Series in 2007. They won it again in 2013. And they won it again in 2018 as well. And all but probably 
one of those years because he really didn't play much in 2018. He only appeared in three games that year. You take him away from the 07 or 2013 teams, and I'm not sure the Red Sox win a World Series either of those two years. So there's at least that to go on. Um, but a great player. I mean, he'll be missed in Boston as a player for sure. But, uh, again, you know, these are the type of players that you like to have because, you know, obviously they have that characteristic about them that the whole team is kind of on their shoulders and they kind of guide the the clubhouse and they, you know, wear it all on their sleeves and leave it out on the field kind of thing. So I think he, he's the type of player that he hustled a lot. You mentioned something that really struck me there too. Um, you know, he was undersized and – I'm not sure I've ever seen him in person up close enough to say, hey, I think he's only 5'6 or 5'7, but um, you'd know better than I would given that you stood next to him. Um, but it, it, it's something that I, I think is always a, a good thing to hear when a guy isn't quite as big and he he says, look, I'm not going to let this hold me back. You know, you look at uh, at um, the second baseman there with the Astros, um, you know, he's 5'5 five five and he's, you know, won an MVP. So, you know, there's that old saying, Alan, that it's not the uh, the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog, and I think that would be definitely a, um, a mantra to put around Dustin Pedroia. Yeah, I agree. I, You know, Dustin Pedroia, to me, is a guy who will make it to the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, because, yes, you're, you're right. I looked at his numbers, too. They don't jump off the page so to speak, but I just feel like the impact he's made on that team, helping him break that curse, helping him get those those rings, you're absolutely right. To your point, Dustin Pedroia is not on the team. They don't they don't beat the Yankees, and I don't think they, they'll get those rings. He was a big part in galvanizing them. David Ortiz even said, hey, I leaned on Dustin Pedroia. He helped me out dramatically in my career for me to be as great as I am. And I think that's the biggest impact – on some players that, yes, you can look at the numbers statistically, I get it, but I think some players rise up and above beyond their numbers. And that's why I put Dustin Pedroia. His numbers don't jump off the page. He did get an MVP. He got the rings. He got rookie of the year. But I just, don't, I just think his impact on the field was a lot more than what his stats really show, and it was in a positive way. So, to me – that guy's a gamer. He's a gritty competitor, you know, and and he definitely got a lot of attention from the Yankee fans because of his grit, because of his determination, and he made the most of of what he had available to him. So if I had a vote in this, I would give – I would be more confident in giving Dustin Pedroia a vote, which I'm glad that you brought up the Hall of Fame because – the segment we wasn't able to really get into that segment about Kurt Schilling. I did want to get your opinion on that. If I had a vote and I had one vote between the two, Kurt Schilling or Dustin Pedroia to vote one of them in the Hall of Fame, I'm going with Dustin Pedroia. It's not just because he made an autograph. It's just I feel as if his impact and everything he brought to the to the league. To me, he's a, he's a he's a Hall of Famer. Whether he's first ballot or not, that's to, to, to be seen. But I, I would vote for him over Kurt. That's just my opinion. I'll get into the reason why I would say that in a few moments, but I want to get your thoughts 
on Kurt Schilling and Hall of Fame? Well, I, I, I honestly am surprised that Kurt Schilling is not already in the Hall of Fame for a number of reasons. I mean, if you had to, to go back and look, statistically speaking and factually speaking, at the best big game pitcher in the playoffs and in the World Series in the last 30 years, probably even in the last 40 years, there is no better pitcher. Like if you're in game seven of the World Series or your season is on the line, Burt Schilling, I believe, is 5-1 and one lifetime in decisive uh, decisive games in a postseason series. In other words, his team was facing elimination. They threw him out there to, to start 5-1. and one. Um, You know, the, the the year, 20 years ago, hard to believe it's been that long ago, but in 2001, what he and Randy Johnson did against the Yankees in the World Series, and in my opinion, in my lifetime, I think that the 2001 World Series was the best one for a variety of reasons. Got to go off on a little bit of a sidebar here. 9-11 had just happened. Obviously, the Yankees are in the World Series yet again. You have this dog fight back and forth. Arizona wins the first two games of the series, and they go to New York. Mr. November happens. You have the Yankees win three games in a row. Looks like they're going to win their fourth World Series in a row, and then you go back to Arizona. And, of course, the rest of history, um, Luis Gonzalez gets the, the walk-off hit there in the in the uh, bottom half of the ninth inning, I believe it was. Kurt Schilling, though, if he isn't pitching that series, if he's not with the Diamondbacks, that, that series never happens the way that it did. So that to happen, and then a few years later, Arizona was kind of out of things. They weren't a, a, a competitive team anymore. They trade him to Boston because he wants to go and help the Red Sox end the curse. He has the bloody sock game against the Yankees. They come back from three games to nothing to win. Uh, it's a lot of historical stuff that happened there. I'll tell you what, Dustin Pedroia, uh, Pedroia was definitely a thorn in the side of the Yankees for a lot of years, but I don't think there's a bigger thorn in the, in the side of the Yankees in baseball in the last 20 years or 30 years, or maybe ever for that matter. They hurt Schilling. I mean, he beat him in the World Series in 01, beat him in the playoffs a couple times in 2004. Um, you know, it, uh, it just I, – I, I'm shocked that he's not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I realize he didn't win games, but you look at some of the years he had where he was striking out over 300 batters, 240, 250 innings, um, and he was also instrumental in the first ending in 2004. It just surprises me that he's not already in. And he got 71.3, I think, percentage of the vote this past year. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, even though he doesn't want to be on the ballot to speak, to think that he is not going to have the opportunity to get an extra 4, 4.5% from the from the voters next year. I definitely think he's going to be, you know, in there in, 20, uh, in 2021, or 2022, rather. I mean, I, I hear all your points and everything about Kurt. Yes, I agree with you. During the postseason, Kurt Schilling was another pitcher. He brought his game up another notch, and he did outstanding in the postseason. Having said that, his regular season stats 
are not something that stands off the page. In particular, that 216 wins. In comparison, it took Mike Messina six years to make it to the Hall of Fame, and Mike Messina has 266 wins. That's 50 more wins than Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling has also played in the, in the league for 20 years versus Dustin Pedroia, who's been in the league for 14 years. So I, I don't think, in my opinion, he's, he's, he's borderline. Like, I could see a case for both ways, him getting it and him not getting it. I do feel, though, the reason why he hasn't been in there is, is a lot of the extracurricular activity with his political, you know, stuff and all of the, the antics. I don't think that bode in his favor. Is that right or wrong? I don't think you should really look at that when it comes to the Hall of Fame as far as you voting someone in or not. That's my opinion on it. Do I think he's, he goes over the top on things? Yes. Yes, I do believe he goes and he go, gets in these, these spats that he really has no business getting into. But with Kurt Schilling, I, I would say, looking at, just looking at the numbers, it's borderline. I definitely do think he's an outstanding postseason pitcher. He is, his postseason stats are definitely not as, are, are definitely light and above versus his uh, regular season. But to your point, I agree with you on this, though, which I'm glad that we brought this topic up about Kurt Schilling. I don't think Kurt Schilling should have really reacted the way he did about him not getting it this year because you were only 71.1%. You were the closest out of anyone this year of making it. You just need to get, like you said, four percentage votes, which ends out to be 16 more votes to get it. I think if you don't react the way you did, you know, acting yourself – to be taken off the ballot, I think you're cutting yourself off a little short. I, I do believe if you're on the ballot, barring, you know, you're saying going off on these tangents, I believe that Kurt Schilling does get it on his last year. I believe they're going to vote him in and get it. I, I think he's cutting himself short by saying, I want to be removed from the ballot, which I found out later on, Major League Baseball is kind of like contesting that. They don't want to remove off the ballot, which leads me to believe that it's more than likely he's going to get voted in on his last year. I do want to say I would love to have Kurt Schilling on the show to debate his Hall of Fame stats and why he made the decision that he's made as far as being removed when he is, to me, maybe cutting off his blessing. And I also want to go ahead and give him props and send him our prayers and thoughts to his wife, lovely wife, Sandra. I mean, Sandra, and I know that she's dealing with with terminal cancer and she's fighting, I definitely want to say my prayers and condolences and to, to Kurt Schilling and his family. I think Kurt Schilling should hang in there because he has a very good shot of making it if, he, if he's on the ballot. What are your thoughts on him making it maybe if he's on the ballot next year? I don't think there's any doubt he'll be on the ballot. Um, just him saying he doesn't want to be on there anymore isn't going to take him off. He, he really has zero control over that. So um, it'd be hard for me to believe that next year he wouldn't get it. If, if his trending has gotten to this point where he's increased incrementally pretty well, you know, the last you know three or four years. Um, I think the, the, the postseason success that he's had and the big game pitcher that he's been – 
that is what really puts him over the top for me. And let me just throw a, a, another stat out there to you because, again, the Hall of Fame is, is judged on, um, you know, what you did historically over your career versus, you know, whoever played in past years. And it's also over, you know, who, who, um, who you played against. He's only three wins shy of what Pedro Martinez had. So, and Pedro Martinez only had about 150 strikeouts more than Kurt Schilling. And Pedro Martinez also wasn't the same postseason pitcher that uh, that Kurt Schilling was. So, if there's a number to look at, and they played about the same amount of years in the league, Pedro's already in the Hall of Fame. I just don't see why Kurt Schilling shouldn't be there. I, I think it, the, the argument kind of stands on its own, I think, with saying he's a Hall of Famer. Here's the other thing, too. Pedro Martinez retired after uh, 2009 after going 5-1 and one with the Phillies. His years with the Mets weren't all that great. I mean, he only had one 15-win season. The rest of his time in New York with the Mets was just kind of mediocre. And you look at Kurt Schilling at the end of his career, he won 15 games at age 39. So he pitched three more years, pitched all the way up to 40 with uh with Boston and um I just think he had a little bit more longevity. He was also a bigger pitcher too, a bigger guy. I think he's like six five, you know, built a little bit bigger and stronger. So six five, two oh five versus Pager who's this little guy who's like five ten and kind of threw his arm out probably as he as he pitched. He kinda of had to put a lot of uh energy behind it. But I think if you're comparing two pitchers that pitched during the same time, if one of them's in the Hall of Fame, the other one's got to be there too at some point. So I just can't imagine where Kirk Schilling is not going to be eventually uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I would love Kurt to debate with that on this show. But I just think that um, I don't think he should even request for him to be removed because out of all the players, he had the closest uptick and he was the closest, 71%. You need 75%, which is which I looked into. It amounts to 16 more votes. I would be hard-pressed to say it's his last year in the ballot. Everybody would know that. I think he would get it. I actually do think to be in the Hall of Fame next year, 2022, he lands, if he's on the ballot and barring anything changing, he would have the best bet of getting it over – being on about the last time, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. They did go up too, but their low 61, I think Clemens around 57, they would need a much bigger uptick to make it to the Hall of Fame, and I just think they're going to fall a bit short short of getting it. I, I, think, I just think that um, Kurt Schilling would get in. I could see that scenario. I think a lot of voters are going to vote for David Ortiz that year to get it as well and other players. So I would tend to doubt Barry and or and or Roger Gillette the last year, their eligibility, because they would have to go up significantly, which is not impossible. But what do you think about them getting it, maybe Barry or Roger Clemens on their last year? I think the stain on both of those guys from their – allegations of performance-enhancing drug use is going to keep them out, at least from the normal process of getting into the Hall of Fame. Now, I can certainly see them getting in from the Veterans Committee sometime down the line. Um, 
even though neither of these guys were ever convicted of actually, you know, using PEDs, the, the thing about it is there's so much evidence out there that at least stain their reputations, and the voters are going to look at those things. Um, you know, I mean, just statistically speaking, and I'm only throwing out the facts here on Bond, for instance, uh, he hit 45 home runs, I want to say at 37. I'll have to go back and look at the stats on him specifically. Um, body changed drastically as he got into his mid to late 30s. And I think a lot of the, the voters, they're not going to forget that, plus the fact that he broke an all-time record of probably the, the greatest human being baseball player ever to play the game. And actually, I want to say this too, you know, he passed away two weeks ago. Today would have been Hank Aaron's 87th birthday. So even though he's not with us any longer, um, happy birthday to the late, uh, late Hank Aaron. Um, our show, we certainly love what Henry Aaron stood for. Uh, but to Bonds for a moment, I mean, I'll say this, taking the steroid stuff out of the equation, the most feared hitter from the left side of the plate since, uh, since, uh, since Babe Ruth. I mean, there's no question about it. He was a guy I would, if I was pitching, I would walk him. I mean, I'll put it that way. I would, I would not pitch to him. I would walk him. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't give him the opportunity yeah. to beat me. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was that dangerous of hitter. In fact, you know, the scary thing about Barry Bonds, he was still intentionally walked many times, even in his later 30s. Pitchers did not want to have any part of him. They wanted to, to get as far away from giving him an opportunity to drive in runs. In fact, there was even a game one time where the bases were loaded. And I think that if he hit a home run or even a loop single, it would have scored the game-winning run. The opposite uh, opposing manager intentionally walked him because they didn't want him to, to be the guy who beat him. So that shows you how much respect it, it seems had for him. But Bonds, you know, the things that kind of stick out to me, look at what he did in uh, 2004. When he was 39 years old, 2004, he had 45 homers, which is not out of the question for a 39-year-old to do. He had 362, and I think he won the batting title that year. But he got walked 232 times that season. And, you know, when he broke the record in, in 2001 for the most homers in a single season, he became someone who at that point, at 36, 37 years old, you're like, hey, you've got a shot to get to Hank Aaron. And I think that what the voters are going to remember is, you know, he he had so many things around him as far as, you know, um, suspicions and things. That, it wasn't just like, oh, we don't like this guy because maybe he's a, not friendly with the media kind of thing. There was there were things around him enough that people were saying, hey, you know what, this is probably not not legitimate to some degree. So whether that's the case or not, that's for voters to decide. I just I don't see him or Clemens, unfortunately. I don't see either of them getting in. On the regular ballot, I see them maybe getting in in the um, veterans committee here in several years. But right now, I just don't see that happening for either one of them. How, how about your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I I think I think it's going to be hard, not impossible, but I think it's going to be hard for them to uptick to get to seventy five percent on the vote. I think Barry Bonds is at sixty one percent. He is trending up, and it is. 
definitely a lot better than the low 30s and 38% he was at. So I think the voters are changing their opinion and voting for him, and obviously the numbers show, but I just find it hard to believe to go from 61 to 75%. I think more or less Kurt Schilling is more where you have to be, 71 to get to 75 on your last year of eligibility. 61 up to 75, I, I just don't see it making that big of a leap. I, I think um, you're, you're right. I agree with you. Their cloud of suspicion, I think people cannot get past that. To me, with Barry Bonds, he's he is a Hall of Famer. And the reason why I would vote him in as a Hall of Famer, I, I do agree there is a lot of smoke with Barry Bonds with the drug use. And I even looked into the records, him saying he took the, the cream, not knowingly, and things of that nature. But I think there's too much smoke with, as far as evidence with him. Having said that, I still believe he's a, he's a, a Hall of Famer. And let me explain to you why. Because that stat of 500 home runs and 500 steals, that to me is going to get you first ballot Hall of Fame, regardless of whether people like you or not. And he has that stat. He's one of the rare people who he's the only one who's, who has that. And to me, his talent alone, prior to all the suspicion, was first ballot Hall of Fame. The most feared batter I can remember. Like, I, if I'm a pitcher, I'd rather pitch to Ken Griffey than to pitch to Barry Bonds. And just imagine this guy chokes up on his bat when he hits, too. He doesn't hit at the end of the knob, that being Barry Bonds. He can he, he knows how to select pitches. He, he doesn't really swing out, out, outside of the zone. And to me, I think with Barry, I believe the drug stuff kind of happened to keep him on the field later in his career to help him build strength, but more importantly, stay active on the field and be at 110%. I don't feel he needed it in order for him to, to be a great player. I, I think that was just multiplying his talent by then some, but I believe he's a Hall of Famer. I feel the same with Roger Clemens. I think it helped him stay on the field longer and gave him some more strength in their later years of their career. If you look at their career prior to any suspicion, they were a cut and above above everybody. And yeah, I, I do. I agree with you. I think they're going to probably have to get it through the veterans committee. I just don't see them getting to the point of 75% voted in, traditionally the way most most Hall of Famers get it voted in. So as much as I would love for Roger and Barry to come on our show and talk about this, I would say no, I don't think they're going to get that 75% come next year. I think they're going to be, unfortunately, this is the last shot for them. I, I think it ends, it, barring something changing dramatically, I think it ends with them not getting it. I think they, they'll probably come closer to getting getting it, but I don't think they'll get the 75%. And it's unfortunate because they both, to me, are Hall of Fame talent. They both are guys that really made a mistake that cost them the Hall of Fame, and I think they have to live with those, those, those mistakes. So what are your thoughts on yeah. the future? I. I agree with you there. I, I don't see them either getting either one getting in this next year. Now, I do find it fitting. Um, we talked about how close Kurt Schilling was. He was the closest, of course, to getting in this year. 
I do find it fitting that, of course, with everything that happened in 2020 with COVID and shortened seasons and no fans at the games and that sort of stuff, I do find it fitting that we're going to be able to watch Derek Jeter and Larry Walker not have to share the makeup of the Hall of Fame induction this summer, not going to have to share that with anybody else this year. Um, it just, to me, seems like the right thing to have happened. Kind of luck of the draw, I guess, how it happened, or just the way that the voters voted, so to speak. But I think at the end of the day, you know, obviously you're a diehard Yankees fan, and Derek Jeter's been one of the most respectable players and icons in baseball in the last half century, probably. To have him have his day and not to share that with anybody other than the other individual Larry Walker who got in with him, that seems like the right thing to have happened. So I think it was going to happen at any time. Maybe that's the silver lining there. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing both of those guys inducted, uh, you know, here this summer, along with uh, with uh, Marvin Miller and then uh, Ted Simmons, who will be getting in uh, as well. So um, talked about a lot of things here tonight. I mean, obviously a lot of excitement in sports. We got the Super Bowl coming up here on Sunday. Uh, I think we're both kind of at the same point where we feel like it's going to be a really solid game. Um, Hall of Fame voting. Obviously, nobody got in this year. A lot of baseball news. And, you know, the thing about that is we've been talking about this for the last probably six or eight weeks. You know, when were we going to see the big signings happen? Finally, it's happened. One domino falls. That's how it always goes. One domino falls, and then all the rest of the pieces start to fall in place, and everything kind of takes care of itself. So, um, really, really good uh, to see those things starting to happen. And, again, the excitement and anticipation of 2021 being right around the corner. I'm hoping to get to go to some games. Not really sure that's going to happen this year, at least from the spring training perspective. Now I got to ask you this, and we're going to have a guest on next week too that's going to go over this with us. Was it silly, in your opinion, for baseball to wait until like two weeks before spring training started to determine whether it was the right time for us to delay the season by a month? Does it seem kind of silly that we waited that long before we did that? Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I definitely think you you had plenty of time before the season ended till now to kind of see the landscape of how this is trending with COVID. Uh, I think it was it's they, they're moving a little late for them to make an announcement that they're going to play. Last I've heard, 154 games or 162. I just think that baseball needs to kind of make the decisions and be a lot more proactive. They need to kind of take a page out of the NFL and and make a decision, make it early, and stick by it. There's too much going back and forth, back and forth, trying to make everybody happy, and that's not going to be the case here in America. I've been here long enough to tell you getting people to agree on anything here in America is a tall task. Even if you're saying, I'm going to give it to you for free, somebody's going to have an issue with it, no matter what it is. And that's just how it is here. So you need to make those decisions early. You need to make have an idea of what protocols you're going to have in place. Mask at the stadium, limited capacity. You you got to start thinking those things a month or two prior. This is now going on a year that we're going in COVID. You know, March officially makes it a year. You should already know where this is headed. Make those decisions. Stick by them. 
be proactive and make those announcements sooner. I mean, that's just unacceptable. We're making it now. Guys are supposed to be reporting now in the next week. So that's that's kind of a downfall on, on Major League Baseball. What are your thoughts on it? I just thought it was silly. I mean, look, we it's well documented on our show. You go back to last June, last late May, last June, and you and I were sitting here talking about the possibility of there not being a season at all in 2020. And then they got their act together and they, you know, stopped whining about having a lesser salary and all the other stuff that went along with that. Um, to me, what, what, what's really shocking and revealing about how what we've seen happen in the last week to 10 days has gone down is were they not paying attention at all last year? And it's almost like even through a pandemic, which has negatively impacted everyone to some degree, um, it's almost like they ignored it. It's almost like they don't they don't care about the fans. And here's what they got to be careful about. They were fortunate after the 94 strike that the fans came back. It took some time for it to happen. It took some big things like Cal Ripken breaking the all-time consecutive game streak, the home run chase in 98, um, and some other big things that happened. It took a little little time. It took a couple of years for the fans to really come back out in full course. And I think the owners and the players as well had better remember that because we're the ones who pay their salaries. You know, Trevor Bauer's not making $40 million to pitch next year with the Dodgers if you don't have fans that are buying their merchandise, that are going to the games and going to the turnstiles, that are subscribing to the MLB network packages, um, all those things. If, if people wanted to – you know, hit them where it hurts, they're going to hit them in the wallet. And so sometimes these guys forget that it's the fans that really make that happen. So um, to me, it seems just crazy that they would two weeks before pitchers and pitchers report, uh, you know what, should we play 154 games? Should we modify the season? Should we delay the season by a month? You know what, play the season. If something gets delayed like it did last year, it'll get delayed like it did last year. If you have a team get sick, you have a team get sick. At the end of the day, you don't need to sit here and wait for something to happen to cause the season to be delayed. Just play. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is going on for a year. You have to have some safety protocols in place. You know, take a page of what some of the other sports are doing. Limited capacity. You have to wear masks until you're eating. I mean, I, do I think it's a fail-safe plan? Obviously, we talked about Corsair Karen. You know, those things, unfortunately, can be broken. But, yeah, you, you from an economical standpoint and an enjoyment, and like you mentioned, that you don't want to get people getting used to not going to the games because they will not go to the games, basically. I think baseball is one of those rare sports where the product is really good. And – if you somewhat like baseball and you start watching some close games, it gets your juices flowing. If you go down to a spring training game, you get so close to the players, it gets exciting. And they can come back. It is going to take some work. But baseball needs to kind of get with the program. You're like, this is not 
this is not <laughs> Babe Ruth days. Okay, we have technology. We're more innovative now. You need to use that innovation to your advantage. Start making decisions. Start getting in a, in a boardroom meeting. What are you guys are going to do? It's like it, it's so disorganized. Are we going to reduce the amount of fans that come in? How are we going to reduce the amount of fans? What protocols are we going to have for the players? Get down and settle these things out and make some decisions. It's like everybody's trying to appease everybody and nobody knows what they're doing with baseball. It's like, come on, man. Make a decision. Stick with the decision. Go forward with it. And don't tell people when they're supposed to report in a week or so whether you're going to start 162 games, 154. These things you should have already worked out and made a decision mid-January at the latest. Get your program together, baseball. We love you. But get your stuff together, man. Come on now. Hundred <laughs> percent. That's absolutely right. <laughs> no, that's hundred percent the case. Uh, I would say so. Um, you know, I think that the interesting thing is, I think that a lot of this too is, you know, sometimes people just they, whatever side they're on, they want to be the one who's right. They want to be the one who made the decision, and they have to remember that. You know, that's not what it was about. So, um, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, the fans and the, the loyalty to the game are going to be the things that that are going to determine the game going forward. And, again, if you, if you anger the fans, that's, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. So, Exactly. I mean, you got great things going in the offseason. You got the first female GM. Let's see what you're working with. Let's see some some mm-hmm. baseball. Like, like let's get it together. You're gonna play. You're gonna play. Or you're not gonna play. They did this game last year, cheating, chattering. You're gonna play. You're not gonna play. We're gonna play reduced season. They went all in this big circle. And yes, you. you I give you credit. You did have a season. It was very competitive. But you cannot have another repeated at again next year. This year, make a decision. Go forward with it. Not everybody's going to be happy with your decisions, but at least make a decision. Yeah, at least, at least uh, make a choice and, and you know stick with it. And I think that's uh, you know that's certainly what, what has to happen. I think it's going to be a great season. I think that there's a lot of competitiveness. You know, we've seen a lot of player movement. That's usually a positive thing. I mean, teams are trying to position themselves for you know run at the playoffs or for um, you know improving. I think there's going to be some prizes this year. I, I'm a fan of the fact that they decided not to have the, the DH in both leagues. I think that makes it better for the National League. Um, and then, uh, you know, having the expanded playoffs, I actually like that idea. I think that really worked, um, you know, I think that really worked very well. So, um, you know, I think that going forward, you know, I think there needs some, to be some things that are thought out um, that can really make the game even more, you know, attractive. Because one of the things they've worked on so well uh, the last probably 10 or 15 years is in the competitive side of things. The the um, There's a committee that actually handles a lot of this stuff for, like, changing rules um, or changing some of the um, – some of the stuff that goes on in the league, 
rules committees. I mean, what, what, what have we seen the last six, seven years? You know, they, they brought an instant replay, which um, I'm not a fan of it completely. I think that having like the, the, the ball was a fair foul that it go over the fence with a home run um, that I'm okay with because it's more of a, a dead ball type of a call. But then you also have situations where the throw went down to second base on the runner stealing. Did he come off the bag? Did the, did the, did the second baseman tag him after he came off the bag? That's a judgment call the umpire should make, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be able to review that. But at the same time, you know, they tried to make the game more interesting because they do want to draw more folks. They want to draw more people in. They want to make the game more interesting. So I think on that side of things, it's become – um, you know, more of a uh, more of a competitive side. So I, I think that uh, you know we'll see how things um, you know we'll see how things go going into 2021. I certainly am very hopeful that we will um, you know watch a great season occur. I think that there's some records that could be shattered this year as far as um, you know not necessarily home run records or anything like that. I, I think that uh, the 73 is probably safe for the time being. Um, but I think when it comes down to the ability to maybe see some strikeout records, potentially at least in recent years get set, or, you know, we're at least seeing salaries get uh, get blown up here. So that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good side of it too. Um Good to see that the uh, salaries are continuing to go up. I mean, that's that's a sign that the sport is heading in the right direction. Um, what I'm excited for probably more than anything else is uh, for um, some teams that couldn't be competitive yes, in the past to now be competitive. So. so we have on the program yes. here tonight, uh, definitely happy to have him here this evening, is Trey Ashby. He is from... Paper Stadium. Uh, we've been looking forward to speaking to him here this evening. And um, I know earlier this week we posted some uh, stuff on our Facebook page about the great work that he does uh, there out of common stuff like paper. Uh, Trey, good evening. How are you tonight? How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing well, doing well. This is, this is Aaron, and that was Alan he just heard there. So um, definitely appreciate you taking time out of your night here to, uh, to join us here. Um, Got a lot of good questions here for you this evening. Um, I can't wait. Uh, we put together here. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much again for, for joining us here. I got to ask you this because I've watched uh, over the last uh, six or so months uh, a lot of the videos that you've done, um, some of them multiple times, just because I'm so impressed with the, the attention to detail. What thank got you. you started on? Uh, yeah, no problem. What got you started on? Uh, stadiums? Was it something that you just thought of randomly, or was there something that kind of led up to uh, to what you do there? Yeah, so the story goes, uh, growing up, I was into sports and art, and I kind of married those together, and I would always draw sports-related stuff, and then that eventually led into me drawing stadiums, and I drew stadiums all the time. Like, I'd tell people I got straight D's in junior high, because <laughs> instead of listening to the lecture, I was busy drawing stadiums, and I like, I, I had to have drawn thousands of stadiums in junior high and uh, I saved a couple of them I have a little binder still of some of the ones I drew and 
like all childhood hobbies, it kind of flaked out or drizzled, you know, I kind of quit doing it as I got into like high school and actually decided I should probably focus during class. Um, so then you fast forward to me being married and 30 years old and having two kids and my wife goes to bed three hours before I do. And after the first couple of years of marriage, you know, I do this or that and I like to work out, but I can't work out every single night. I can't work out for three hours. So I was just looking for a hobby and I kind of went back to that childhood hobby and started drawing stadiums again. So I did that for a little while and then I decided to step it up and try and make like a 3d model. And I, I made one out of cardboard or made two out of cardboard. Then I just had this like epiphany as I, I was, a, and I'm a teacher. Um, I was walking through the teacher's lounge and the recycle bin was just full of this red, white, and blue construction paper. And I was like, I should make a model out of that. I could use all these colors and it'll be cool. So I made a model out of that. And then that was fun. And the next thing I did, I made a model of Rosenblatt stadium where the college World series is played here in Omaha uh, for like 50 something years. And then, what really took it off as far as social media was I made a model of Memorial Stadium where the Huskers play. And as I was making it, I was just sending some some updates to my buddy Cletus just to kind of show somebody what I was doing. So I'd just text him and then I'd say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And just, you know, he'd, he'd be cool and supportive about it. But then the best idea he had is at some point about a third of the way through the Memorial Stadium project, Cletus was like, dude, you need to like put this out there and show this to people. So he's like, start a Twitter account, put it on Twitter. I was like, okay, I'm sure there's a couple dozen people will like this. Uh, and I start, I put it out there, and it was, it's just crazy how fast it's grown. Uh, in less than a year, I'm up to, I went over 10,000 followers, and it was just, I think it's just a matter of I'm using paper, so just everybody has paper laying around to make these awesome uh, models. And for me, what's really fun is, is just putting all this time and effort into something and really wanting it to look good and then seeing people enjoy it as well. So like if I could cheer people up for the three seconds, they look at my tweet. That's what's awesome about it. So it's, it's crazy that going all the way back to drawing stadiums during science class in seventh grade has led to uh, (laughs) me being, I I like to say like a Z list celebrity. It's really the Twitter account that's famous, but a Z list celebrity making a, pretty good penny doing it and it's just been a crazy ride that it's grown this big in a year and a half yeah definitely the the attention to detail because i'm someone who i I always tried to build models when i was younger uh they usually looked really bad even if it was one that i had instructions for so um to see the attention to detail uh trey that you have on these stadiums right down to the most you know smallest thing you see in a stadium is just incredible. Um, My question to you is this. When you put together one of these stadiums, approximately what does it cost? Like for, say, for instance, I know you did uh, Old Candlestick Park uh, where you had the football and the baseball configurations. What does it typically cost out of your pocket to to put something like that together? Well, that's really why I started, when I started doing this, that's why I was using cardboard and paper was just I had that stuff lying around work, you know, it was the first couple of scenes mm-hmm. I built were absolutely free. You know, I used some oh, scrap cardboard <laughs> that I found at work. I, I found, like I said, I was pulling cart, uh, construction paper out of recycling bins and everything. And then as I've gone on, you know, I've bought supplies and I bought a cricket cutter, which is like 200 bucks. But if you just look at a finished stadium and look at all the, the product that's in the stadium itself, it's maybe four or $5 worth of paper and, 
the foam board that it all sits on is the most expensive part. That's probably $3 and then a dollar or two worth of paper. So what's been, like I said, like what really got me in it, even now that I am specifically buying paper and different colored paper and I have a whole, we have a shelf in our pantry dedicated to um, cardstock and different colors of cardstock. But even then it still only cost me $5. I would guess five to $10 to build a paper stadium. Well, well, I mean, really that's impressive. Incredible, yeah, <laughs> to be able to, <laughs> to to be as meticulous as you are. Now, when you start a project, I know you've been working on, I think it's uh, Notre Dame Stadium this past couple of days. Yeah. I've seen your post there. From start to finish, um, like if you were logging the hours that it took you to do it, but approximately how long does it take to build uh, a park? So I just – I have I get that question all the time. I always guesstimated but I just finally got a, like actually kept track as they built uh, the Seahawks Lumen Field. Um, and mm-hmm. the story goes, the Seattle Seahawks called me, and normally these things take me about three weeks to make. Uh, and they're like, we love it, blah, 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 but can we do it in eight days? And I'm like, sure, of course I can. In the back of my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't think I can. But I just decided <laughs> to dive into the water and see if I could swim. And I worked, my wife was awesome, supported me, and, I worked all day, three days in a row, New Year's Day, Saturday, Sunday, and then I was staying up late, and I logged my hours for the seven days it took me to make it, and it was 80 hours to make it. So, And every stadium's a little bit different. Some take longer than others just because all these different factors that go into it. So I'd always say they'd probably take me anywhere from 60 to 100 hours of man hours. And when people mm-hmm. buy a stadium from me, they're not paying for the material because, like I said, that was only 5 bucks. They're paying for all the hours of dedication that I put into making them and trying to make them look as great as possible. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely that. really neat. And, and definitely a good, uh, a good in- uh, investment on your behalf. If you're only, you know, paying $5 or so to, to make one, yeah. to be able to, yeah. to turn it around and make a profit off of it. That's definitely a, uh, you know, great thing in my book. So now of these parks, I know you, um, you live in uh, Omaha, so you're, I believe I've seen you wear the Nebraska um, uh, memorabilia, or not memorabilia, but uh, athletic wear. Uh, you have like a, a shirt that I've seen you wear before. You've been obviously yeah. to to the stadium there. Of uh, some of the other parks you've made, Wrigley Field, Yankee Stadium, um, Candlestick Park. Have you visited any of these parks over the years, or, or have, you, have you ever been to any of the other places you built a stadium for? You know, I was just thinking about uh, this the other day about sitting down and writing down which ones I've actually been to. Uh, I think I'm on Stadium 34 right now. I didn't mm-hmm. actually write down, so this is a guesstimation. I think I've only been to about 10 of them. So, you know, like you said, I've been to Memorial Stadium. Uh, I've been to Wrigley Field, Dodger Stadium. But a lot of the other ones I made, like Cleveland was torn down when I was five years old, so I had never been there. And Candlestick Park, I never went, I've never been to San Francisco at all. Uh Let's say I've never been to Notre Dame Stadium that I'm building right now. I've never never been to Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium. So it's kind of like funny that my getting to know these stadiums has been through building them and building models and looking at pictures of them and looking at them on Google Maps for hours and hours and hours instead of just actually visiting them. <laughs> visiting them. Yeah, and that's that's great, Trey, that you're able to use your talent to to build these magnificent stadiums and and do such something that most people can only dream about doing you know to, you. to to follow up on that oh you're very welcome how did the opportunity come about and how was your feeling when it came about for you to have gotten the offer to build the 32 teams 
from the NFL? Uh, so it was just the Seahawks. Um, but that was just like, that was like getting called up to the big leagues and just, there's been so many moments throughout this whole, from the, from the time that Cletus told me to start a Twitter account to now, there has been so many times that I've said, I never on my wildest dreams would have thought it would lead to this. You know, like uh, my kids got to run around at Memorial stadium uh, by themselves and play on the field, which is like hollow ground in Nebraska. Like I never would have thought that would have happened. I never would have thought Stone Cold Steve Austin would uh, talk to me on Twitter. I never thought that Jim Harbaugh would be holding one of my, uh, pieces of our work. I never thought I'd be commissioned by the Seattle Seahawks uh, to make a piece for them. So uh, what it really is, just kind of just surreal that I, I was sitting there signing a contract with Seahawks logos on it, you know, and it's it's kind of funny. I was telling my buddy, so Cletus, I keep bringing him up. He's six foot nine, 300 pounds, played college football. So if someone would have came back to us when we were 12 years old and said, hey, one of you someday is going to sign a contract with the Seahawks, I would have been asking what round Nate got dra- what, what round he got drafted in. So it, it's pretty. It's just so surreal to think that all this stuff has been happening just because, just because he told me to start a Twitter account and put this artwork out there. And then the more I've done it, the better I've gotten. The better I've got, the more people have appreciated it, and the more random, crazy doors that have opened. I have another big commission I can't really talk about right now. That's again just mind blowing. That this this uh, this. Um, I don't know how to phrase it without giving it away, but this organization is reaching out to me and, and commissioning me and I'm signing, sending them invoices and all. It's just, it's, it's mind blowing is what it is. I never thought it would lead to this at all. And it really is coming from most of your hits and you feel as if your circulation of people getting to know you is through Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a TikTok following of like 10,000 and then, you know, Instagram and YouTube's one or two thousand. But what's really where, where I'm really hitting home is on Twitter, and just what Twitter is good at is if you make good content, it, people will like it and retweet it, and then other people will see it. Whereas, you know, Facebook, you can make the greatest content ever, but Facebook suppresses posts and blah blah blah. They just you don't see the best stuff because you know without going into too much talk about it. But Twitter is just if it's good and people like it, they will share it with their friends. And if their friends like it, they'll share it with their friends. So the better my stadium is, the better my video is, the cooler what I'm doing is, the more publicity I get for it. So that's why, why I've really invested a lot of energy in Twitter. And I've been able to build, like I said, 13, almost 13,000 followers without paying a dollar, just making good content and, and relying on people and loyal fans that appreciate what I'm doing and sharing it with their friends. That's that's amazing. I, you know, Twitter, you don't think of them as being like this big hit social media platform, but you'd always think yeah. Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. Yeah. But I'm glad you brought that up, yeah. that putting out great content gets attention on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. I love about it. It's like everybody keeps saying Instagram's where it's at, but you got to pay for ads and everything on Instagram. And even if you like my page, uh, Instagram still might not show you my stuff. Whereas Twitter, if you like my page and I post it while you're on Twitter, it'll show it to you. And like I said, then it opens up that door that if you like it, you can share it with people. Yeah, that's impressive. That's and, definitely. And, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Alan. <laughs> no, I was going to say, uh, you know, just to follow up on the meeting, Jim Harrow, how was that experience for you? So I didn't get to meet him. And I'll tell you the story, though. It's kind of funny that, 
um, all the way back in like August, I had a big booster for Michigan reach out to me and said he wanted to buy one for himself and he wanted to buy one to send to Jim Harbaugh. Like, okay, that's like, again, I would never believe something like that would happen, but okay, here we go. So I built two Michigan stadiums at the same si- same time, uh, side by side. I, you know, put a scoreboard on the one on the left, put the scoreboard on the one on the right. And then, uh, in about October, I finished it up and I sent it to him and, all I, all I did was include a note like, hey, it's so cool that this guy bought it for you. Thanks. And, uh, you know, whatever. And just included my Twitter handle, just kind of fishing it. Like, you know, if you want to send me a picture, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, but then he never sent anything. And I just figured, you know, busy guy, whatever. Uh, and then fast forward like three months later, and this is just probably two weeks ago. I'm driving downtown to go meet my family for lunch. And I get a text from an unknown number and it says, coach loved the stadium. And I had no clue what it was talking about because it just, it was so far in the back of my mind. That was three months ago. And then I get to the restaurant and pull up my phone, and there's a picture of Jim Harbaugh uh, holding something that I worked on for three weeks, which is that was that was pretty stinking cool. <laughs> no, that's, congratulations. That's, that's that's really cool right there. And that that exposure for you, I'm sure, probably you know blew things through the roof, so to speak. So that's really neat there. Now. Let me ask you this. Um, I know you build a lot of stadiums, and you, you've done, I think, some soccer stadiums, obviously baseball, football. Uh, there's some basketball arenas like Madison Square Garden. Have you built anything else, like uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, monuments or any other, like, buildings that you've uh, built, uh, like maybe the White House or anything like that, or yeah. is it just stadiums at this point? Uh, it's the only exception has been I, ba- I made a model of Radio City Music Hall. Um Early on well, and early going, I would like to do it again because I, 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 now that I look at it, I think of so many ways I could do it better. But it still ended up pretty cool, and it has a little hole in the side of it that you can look and see inside the, uh, the grand hallway they have there, and then into the theater. And so that's the only non-stadium I made. But if anybody reached out to me and, like you said, if they wanted me to make the White House or they wanted me to make the pyramids of Giza, it would, it would be fun to make something, <laughs> anything out of paper. It's just, it, I, you know. But I think, you know, the name Paper Stadiums, I think only, people only uh, think of having me make stadiums for them. But as much as I love making stadiums, I'd, it'd definitely be a fun challenge to do something different. Is there yeah, one so, in particular, so. without going into that project you, you can't talk about right now, is there one stadium in particular that you maybe have um, an idea to do at some point that you're really looking forward to? Or? Yeah, so I, I have like a wish list. And right now everything is – um, everything I'm making is based off of what people are ordering because it's kind of like this balance between if I'm going to dedicate this much time uh, doing something, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm doing it during family time or whatever just so I can get these jobs done and I got to be getting paid for it. So I can't just do ones that I want to do, but uh, <laughs> maybe someday I'll get around to them or people will commission them. Uh, but I just have a list of, like, Comiskey Park and Tiger Stadium. I like the polo grounds at the top of my list. Uh, I'd love to do Oakland Coliseum. I'd love to do Kauffman Stadium or the Ro- Rosenblatt Stadium again. Uh, mm-hmm. Fenway, Ebbets, you know, there's just a list of all these classic stadiums uh, that I'd love to do someday. You know, Lambeau Field, Arrowhead. I could just keep going on and on. It's to a point where oh, yeah. this list is almost <laughs> so long. It's just I don't know if I'll ever actually get to all of them, but – it's just nice having a list of about 20 stadiums I'd love to do someday. Wow. Yeah, and definitely, again, the details that you go into are absolutely incredible. Let me ask Thank you this, you. not related to any of the stadiums you've made, but um, obviously Super Bowl is coming up here 
on uh, on Sunday, and you're in the Midwest there in uh, in, yeah. uh, in Omaha. Who, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? <laughs> so the thing about Omaha, we are only three minutes, three hours away from Kansas City, right? So mm-hmm. you'd think everybody up here would be Chiefs fans, but it's really divided between Chiefs, Bears, Packers, Vikings, Broncos. Uh, I don't know why it's that way because. Uh, you know, the Broncos are probably the next closest team. That's still like a seven or eight hour drive to go to a Broncos game. But uh, so I just grew up in the other thing is in Nebraska, it's college football, college football, college football. And then there's like 50 feet of distance and then maybe the NFL <laughs> or Major League Baseball. So, you know, so me growing up, it's like I've always kind of been a bandwagon fan, but uh, I've cheered for the Colts for a while because of Peyton Manning, and right now I'm kind of getting onto that uh, Chiefs bandwagon just because Patrick Mahomes is so fun to watch. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he definitely yeah. is, um, for sure. So I think it's going to be a, a, certainly a great game. I think you got uh, sure. actually Allen and I are both in the Tampa area, so uh, you get oh, the greatest quarterback well, of all time. And, and, what, what's that? I'm sorry to insult you and say I'm cheering against your team. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not a personally. I'm not a, a Bucks fan. I'm actually a Packers fan. Oh, yeah. But uh, okay. um, I, I'm looking forward to a good game. I think it's, this is probably the first Super Bowl we've seen in a long time where it's really hard to say definitively one team's going to win versus the other because there's yeah, yeah, such good quarterbacks. I think that and, the and dynamic of the legend that's in his last couple of years, and then the the upcoming legend that's in his first couple of years. I think that's the most interesting storyline that. Um, you kind of gonna you know that that streak of the Super Bowl always having Brady, um, Manning or Roethlisberger for so many years or whatever, it's gonna transition into yeah. Mahomes. So that's kind of cool that that's that's starting off like they're overlapping, and now it's gonna be Brady straight into Mahomes. It's probably gonna be in the Super Bowl, maybe not ten times like Brady was, but you know he's gonna be in the Super Bowl a lot over the next couple of years. So it's kind of cool having that yeah. overlap rather than the, there being a gap in between them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point there. So, well, I tell you what, Trey, uh, we're almost out of time here tonight, unfortunately, but we definitely appreciate you coming on the program. Um, we'll continue if you're okay with it for uh, posting your stuff on our Facebook. And, um, oh, I love that. You definitely get the word out there, and you know, maybe when you have another project coming up here that you can talk about, uh, we can have you back on the program again. We'd love to do it. Oh, that'd be a blast. Yeah, I just I love it. Just sharing stuff is great to have. Like I said, it's it's nice making money, obviously, but what's really fun is just sharing it with people and and knowing that people appreciate what I'm doing. So I really I, I enjoy hearing you guys say that you appreciate it and showing it to other people. So thank you very much. I I really enjoy that and have a lot of fun with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for uh, for joining us here tonight on the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk Radio program. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. We'll definitely get some some more posts out there. Uh, regarding paper stadiums uh, for those of you who haven't seen it yet uh, it is on uh, facebook under paper stadiums and also under youtube some great stuff you'll be amazed at how much detail uh, trey goes into uh, thank you all so much tonight for listening this is uh, the end of our program here on this friday night and uh, everyone have a safe and fun super bowl weekend so long everybody <laughs>